Last week, we began to look at a biblical view, specifically, of sex and sexuality. And we defined, or I defined last week, um, sex from the Bible's point of view as this. It's the act of one man and one woman giving themselves to another, and in so doing, saying, I belong completely and exclusively to you. Uh, We also talked about how this view of sex and sexual expression is increasingly Uh, being rejected in our culture, and that's not just um, a simple thing. There's really a huge reason for that. And if you weren't here, I encourage you, you can go find it on iTunes, just type in RUF Tulsa, or you go to the Facebook page, we link to it on there too. Um, But basically what I've tried to build a case for is that our cultural narrative is one of expressive individualism. And what that means is, kind of as a, as a philosophical idea, is that we deeply value our individuality and the freedoms that we have in being people who can do and say and think whatever we want. And the, the expressiveness of that is what we highly value, that not only do I get to be an individual and think for myself, and some of that is fine and good, but I get to express that however I want, and in any way if I am challenged in that, That is the worst thing that can happen in our culture, and you guys know that. The moment that you challenge anyone on an idea or a belief or a conviction or something like that, you have in an instant, excuse me, in an instant become a bigot or judgmental or, I mean, it really is. The worst thing you can do is tell someone that's not true or that's not right or that's not good or anything like that. And this is because the cultural narrative that we have is expressive individualism. And we talked about how uh, the culture is increasingly rejecting the Bible because the Bible's narrative goes directly against that. It says, actually, we don't get to just think and say and believe and do what we want. That God has designed us. He has created us. And if we are to live rightly and sanely, then we will live in accordance with what what He has given us and the way that He has designed us and the way that He's ordered this world. So tonight, we're going to continue looking at um, at the Bible's view of sex and sexuality, and we're going to continue even next week doing it, because it's a big topic, requires some unpacking. Let me take a drink, and then we'll uh, jump in. Um, By way of introduction, I had a seminary professor who talked about, uh, kind of drew us this picture of, imagine that it's the summertime, and you're out playing uh, a pool volleyball with a bunch of friends, you know, one of those... um, uh, what are they called, sport pools where it's pretty shallow and you can you know, stand up and spike the ball and all that stuff. And inevitably during one of those games, the ball will go over the net and there'll be a play at the net. You know, there's water going everywhere. And then you look up and it's like, well, where, where'd the ball go? And everybody's like, I don't know. And somebody is sitting on it, right? And they're trying to hide it. But that person kind of starts bobbing back and forth. And they can only stay, uh, keep the ball underwater so long before it comes like screaming out to the surface and spinning and, you know, a little rat tail thing off of it and all that. Too much detail. Um, What happens is that in our culture, when it comes to sexuality, and and really, tonight we're taking a turn towards sexual brokenness, the reality is is that we we are all affected sexually. We have sexual brokenness and baggage in our lives. Whether or not you have actually engaged yourself in sexual expression in in that way, or, or in pornography or anything, or... Whether you have been very chaste and very um, guarded in that way, and you're, or might say prude in that way. Whether you are at one end of that spectrum or the other, you've very much given in or you've not given in at all, you are affected by sexuality and by sexual brokenness in this world. 
And we'll talk about how and why that is in just a second. And the reality is, is that you can either ignore it and try to keep it underwater for, for some time, but at some point, it is going to come screaming to the surface in your life. And you're going to have to finally acknowledge that I, I have been affected by this. I've been affected by just living in a culture that is so saturated with, with sexuality and with distorted images of beauty and what that means and what that is, that we are all deeply affected by it. We live in a, a sexually saturated, porno, pornographized world. I mean, that's, a, that's not actually a word. My Apple underlined it. But I'm going to make it a pornographized world. We're affected by it just because we breathe and live in this world. When we pray for us, we're going to read Scripture together. Father, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word and the teaching of it tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to read a story from Matthew chapter 19. This is Jesus, uh, an encounter that Jesus has with the Pharisees. And I'll talk about who they are in just a little bit. Now, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And the disciples said to him, if if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. This ends the reading of God's word. I am going to focus next week on verses 10 through 12 and what Jesus is saying there about uh, the idea of a eunuch. And the eunuch, in a very broad term, is someone who uh, isn't living out their sexual identity. They are living a chaste and celibate life. Uh, And there's different causes and reasons for that. uh, And we're going to jump into that more fully next week. Um, A guy named Scott Sauls is a pastor in Nashville. And he had this illustration when talking about um, sex and its importance Um, and its place in our world. And he said that, imagine for a moment with me that you're at a museum, and um, here in Tulsa, let's say, let's say the Gilcrease Museum gets notification that the Mona Lisa is on a traveling exhibit, and they want to put it over at the Gilcrease uh, for a few months. So, right, the museum director, the curator's freaking out. Uh, Connor Lynch, who's our friend here, he wants to do that. So Connor's freaking out. And the the director, in preparation for the Mona Lisa coming to the Gilcrease, is talking to his crew. He said, okay, you know, we have to protect this. We have to do these certain things. And so let's let's get a a tape line and let's put like a three-foot, it's probably more like 30-foot, but let's put a three-foot diameter around this thing so that no one can get close to it. So they can't touch it, so they can't sneeze on it, so they can't spill their drink on it, or there would be no drinks in there. Um, But you know what I'm saying. So nothing happens to it. Okay? 
Well, so um, through uh, the process, as the, the images, uh, the Mona Lisa is on display, imagine a scenario where a group of museum goers come in and they decide that we really don't just want to look at the Mona Lisa. We want to touch it. We want to take it off the wall. We want to pass it around. We want to feel it. We want to really experience it that way. And so they kind of cause an uprising, and they band together, and they start to press in around uh, the three-foot line. And the museum curator, the director, he jumps in there and says, No, stop. It was never meant to be enjoyed like that. You're supposed to enjoy it with your eyes. You're not supposed to touch it. Your hands will, will destroy it and the oils and all this stuff. This is not how it's supposed to be. And they press in them around him, and they finally just take the painting off the wall, and they start passing it around. And indeed, it does become destroyed. So who's right? Who's right? The museum director. Why? Because the Mona Lisa is priceless. And we all know that. Its value is untold because it's, it's one of a kind. And we don't have to convince each other of that. Its value is immeasurably high. And the limits on how it's to be viewed and appreciated aren't just out of respect for the painting. They're out of respect for those who are viewing it, for those who are appreciating it as well. And friends, when we, when we talk about the biblical sexual ethic, which is given to us in Scripture by God, the, 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 the ethic given to us isn't meant to be some sort of limiting factor to keep us from enjoying what's there. It's actually given to us to liberate us to enjoy it. It's actually given us to limit and put restrictions on how it's to be enjoyed so that we can enjoy it fully and rightly. Just as the Mona Lisa was not meant to be touched and passed around and done with it as they pleased, so also sex and sexuality is, is not meant to be done with it as we please. And yes, so it's, it's out of deference and obedience and respect and honor to God but it's also for the long-term and right enjoyment of us. God's commands are never just arbitrary. They always have woven throughout their origin the idea and the benefit of humanity. They, they work toward human flourishing in its fullest sense. And so when the Bible calls us uh, to sexual chasteness outside of marriage, it is for a definite and beautifying reason. And tonight, as we look and hear Jesus taking on some of these issues head on, <clears throat> we're going to see that Jesus holds out a big view of sexuality, and we're also going to see that Jesus has a very realistic view of sexual brokenness. So he knows about the beauty of sex, but he also acknowledges and knows about the brokenness of sex. And we're going to start there tonight, and we're going to continue on into next week. But let's start there in verses 1 through 9. In the passage, we get this front row seat of a conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, if you don't know, were, uh, they were kind of the religious elites of the day. 
They were people who had devoted their lives and their free time, and, and some of them even professionally, to studying the, the Old Testament, which was their Bible. They knew the laws. Many of them had huge chunks of the Bible memorized. They would put probably the most memorizing one of us to shame. I mean, they were the good people. They were very moral. And Jesus uh, comes to them, and they're trying to... They don't like Jesus because he's kind of doing this little upstart rebellion thing, and he's getting people to follow him instead of following their Old Testament traditions, and that's, that's frustrating them. And so they're trying to trap Jesus, and they're like, All right, Jesus, which one is it? You've said, you know, tell us about Genesis 1 and 2. What about marriage? Can we get divorced or not? And they ask him, is it lawful divorce anyone, uh, one's wife for any cause? And Jesus essentially answers by saying, haven't you read Genesis 1 and 2? And the obvious answer to that is yes. They probably had it memorized syllable for syllable. And the reason that he does that and that he is, he is saying that if God brings two people together, if God brings a man and a woman together, they should not be separated. And the reason that he's saying that and having to stress this is that right then in that first century uh, uh, Jewish cultural culture, there were uh, rabbinic or teachings of rabbis, rabbinic teachings which said, and we have these, you can go look them up, that there were 640-something allowable reasons why a man could leave his wife. And they ranged from serious offenses to things as stupid as she, she burned dinner. I, I, I'm not making this up. If your wife, and you're in the first century and you're a Jewish person, some rabbis taught that if your wife burned dinner, you could divorce her. And so it's not hard to imagine why and how this had just run rampant through the culture and men were leaving their wives. And that was a big deal because it was very much an agrarian kind of patriarchal society and the women did not work. They were totally dependent on the men to to support them. And so when these men are just like, dang, baby, I smell something burning. Just kidding, divorce you. Like, it was a total detriment of these women. And so he's saying, when you do that and you go marry another woman for any reason except sexual immorality, then you're committing adultery. You can't do that. But notice that he does give this one reason why it is lawful to divorce your wife. And it would be vice versa, right? Sexual immorality. Now, what I'm not going to do tonight is to talk about all biblical reasons for divorce, because I actually think there are some legitimate other reasons for divorce, such as abuse and desertion. A spouse leaves the other, or leaves the family. Like, yeah, okay, but I'm not going to talk about all that tonight. I just want to let you know that there's other permissible reasons I think we see in Scripture. But sexual immorality. And there's something about it so serious and destructive that in Jesus' mind, he says, that actually breaks the marriage covenant. In and of itself, sexual immorality, it severs the marriage covenant. And so, yes, there is allowable divorce right there. So what is this? The word for sexual immorality in the Greek, and I don't say this to impress you. I say this so you can see what it is, is porneia. wonder where that shows up in our culture. And um, it's a word which refers, in the definition of it, it refers to anything that... Anything that occurs outside the boundary lines of proper and biblical sexual ethic between one man and one woman in the confines of a committed monogamous marriage. Okay? I realize you may not agree with that. You can listen to last week and hear all my disclaimers about that. 
Pernea is serious business because sex, in the Bible's eyes, is very serious business. If sex is... If sex is one person saying to another, I belong completely and exclusively to you, then engaging in any sort of sexual immorality of of any kind, even if it's with yourself in your own mind or in the privacy of your room, engaging in sexual immorality of any kind is fundamentally a devaluing of what sex is according to the Bible. The act of sex... Is saying, I give myself completely and exclusively to you. And so to use sex and to engage in sexual expression any other way is handling it in a way that it was never meant to be handled. Okay, so that's what sexual immorality is. Let's talk about where this shows up in our world and in our lives. The first one is right there in relationships. Now, this is no surprise. Um, Last week... We talked about the purpose of sex. And one of the purposes of sex, we talked about sex is for recreation in marriage. It's fun, right? That's a good thing. God created that. Um, It's for procreation. Sex is to to create offspring so that we can populate the world and the kingdom of God could, could flourish and grow. And we talked about that last week. The third thing is that sex is for communication. That within marriage, the act of sex is saying something. And I've already mentioned it, saying I belong completely and exclusively, exclusively to you. And so, friends, if you are engaging in any sort of sexual expression, I keep saying that, I guess I'll keep saying that, sexual expression in any relationship, whether it's with a friend with benefits, whether it's a casual hookup, whether it's with someone you've started today, somebody you're talking to, somebody you're seriously dating, someone you're exclusively dating, someone you're engaged to, If at any point along that way you are engaging in sexual expression, you are lying to them. Because you do not belong completely and exclusively to them. Unless you are married, anytime you engage in sexual acts, you are fundamentally telling that person a lie. And I know that you've probably never thought of it like that. We probably just think, oh yeah, I feel bad, I shouldn't do this. But have you ever thought the very act of doing that is lying to them? There is zero commitment in dating. I don't care how much you want to argue differently. We're going to talk about it in a few weeks. You can leave the next day over a text message. (laughs) And there's essentially no fallout other than her friends or his friends may hate you. Or you may have an awkward trip over to get your things from their apartment. Like, there is no commitment in dating. Okay, more on that later. The problem, uh, David, uh, Dr. David Jones says this, the problem with sex outside of marriage is that it performs a life-uniting act without life-uniting intent. So you're doing this thing which says, yes, we, we have joined all of ourselves together, except unless you're married, you haven't. Your money is not their money. Your debt is not their debt. Your baggage is not their baggage. You haven't done that. So if if sex is a way to say, I'm completely yours, then when you're using it in some other way, uh, when you're using it outside of marriage, you're using it to say something else. And friends, here's the part about this that you have to understand. The more you use sex to say something else, whether it's I like you or I want to keep you or I think we should be married, whatever it is you're trying to use it to say, The more you use it that way, the less and less convinced you'll be of what it means at all. 
The more that you engage in it and use it in these various number of ways that we do, the more and more convinced you'll be that you don't even know what it's saying. And I'm going to tell you guys from personal experience, if you think that putting a ring on your finger is going to make all of your sexual exploits and baggage from your life suddenly disappear and be just amazing from that point forward, friends, you are fooling yourselves. Trust me. It doesn't just disappear and become fine when you get married if you get married. So, what happens? What happens if, what, what do I do if, you're, if, if I'm in a relationship like this and we're doing things that, that maybe the Bible's saying we shouldn't do, the Bible's definitely saying we shouldn't do, what do I do? The first thing is this. Repent. Repent. What do I mean by that? I mean that you finally need to acknowledge to God that you have been trying to find joy in life. Or maybe you've been trying to find relational fulfillment through sexual expression. And to repent means that you look at God finally and say, I'm looking in the wrong place. That I'm trying to find something in that guy or in that girl or in that bedroom or in front of my computer, something that only you can offer me, God. And so I want to change. I need to change. I want to bring myself in line with your design for sex and sexuality so that you can begin healing that part of me. And God, I need to ask your forgiveness because I have, I have gone against your desires have gone against the way that you have said this is supposed to be. So please forgive me. And the good news of the gospel is that in Jesus, the answer to that is, yes, absolutely I will. And I will send my spirit into you and begin changing you. You can change, friends. I I promise you can change. But you have to begin by acknowledging uh, God as as the thing that you're looking for. Um, In a mid-20th century novel called The World, the Flesh, and Father Smith by Bruce Marshall, um, in the book, the protagonist, who uh, is a dutiful uh, Catholic priest named Father Smith, and when he's walking home one day, he encounters a beautiful, seductive young woman uh, standing on her front stoop. And and this book is written with a lot of satire and sarcasm, so it's kind of a a cheeky, funny book. Um, He sees this beautiful young woman, and her name is Miss Dana Agdala. And she's provoc- it says that she's provocatively accented by her frock blowing all around her lovely legs. Oh. She introduces herself to Father Smith as the author of the scintillating and best-selling novel, Naked and Unashamed. And she says, but perhaps you haven't read me. Well, after a short dialogue on a walk, Miss Agdala judges that Father Smith's answers to her questions prove what she had maintained about Christians all along, that religion is only a substitute for sex, she says. And Father Smith turns to her, encounters her roundly and says, I still prefer to believe that sex is a substitute for religion and that the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. What's he saying? He's saying that when you look to sexual acts or sexual expression or sexual uh, uh, involvement with someone else, what you're actually looking at, if you're carrying that out in any other way outside of a committed marriage, 
you are actually looking for God. That you are trying to find satisfaction in your, in your life in some way that you are never de, uh, designed to find it. In a place where, where it will never be satisfied. And so the Bible calls us to repent of that and to acknowledge, God, I have been looking for the wrong thing in the wrong place. But look, it's not just heavy-handed like that. It's not just repent, be different, change. The Bible comes in and offers you good news and says there is healing and there is forgiveness in Christ. That when you do come to God and repent and turn from your ways, there is real healing and change possible there. I can talk to you about how that and the way that's looked in my life over time. It wasn't instantaneous by any means. I can let you talk to some of your friends and, and there's people in RUF who have volunteered to share their struggles with others in this way. There's real healing to be had there. But thinking that we can uh, continue going to this place and be fed in the deep parts of our soul is like eating cotton candy for every meal of the day and hoping that long term we're going to end up healthy. It's just not going to work. Secondly, though, on this, so we repent, but also realistically speaking, if you are in a relationship where this is going on, where there is uh, sex at any place along the spectrum, I'm going to very kind of... uh, boldly but seriously tell you, you really do need to break up or get married. Because you're not going to stop. You're, you're just not strong enough. I don't mean that as any disrespect to you and to your ego or whatever, but I have seen this long enough. I know it from personal experience. I know it from my friend's experience. You're just not going to stop. That God has created us to be escalators, sexually speaking. And the moment you get on, you, that thing is supposed to take you to the top. It's supposed, you're supposed to end in an orgasm every single time. Okay? I'm not being flamboyant. That's what's supposed to happen. We are not elevators. We don't get to say, well, I'm gonna, actually I'm going to get off the second floor. We've been at the fourth floor, but I'm just going to get off the second floor now. from now on. You're not going to. You may do it for a little time, and you're going to create a bunch of rules, and you're going to make each other promise that we'll never do this again. And then two weeks later you do it and you hate each other and you fight and you go complain to your friends about fighting. Your friends are like, shut up, stop talking to me about that. Get, break up already. And you're like, no, we can't break up because we're in love. And okay, so you go do it again. You promise again you won't do it. And then you go fight again. And then all of a sudden you're fighting all the time and your friends hate you because all they want you to do is to break up so you'll stop crying to them about this stuff. And it becomes this big thing. And so I'm, I'm just going to tell you on the front end, break up or get married. And some of you don't need to get married right now (laughs) because that's only the biggest decision you'll ever make outside of following jesus and so how do you know if you should break up or get married friends you talk to people you invite wise counselors into your life i don't claim to be wise but i would love to you to talk to you about this we have interns who would love to talk to you about this hey i'm just a freshman and i'm involved in this way with this with this guy or with this girl what should i do well Should you get married? I don't want to get married. Okay, then you probably should break up. Some of you, though, marriage is something you need to do, and you actually probably need to do it sooner than later um, because you shouldn't just keep on in this way. And, And if it's right and proper and you have, you know, things lined up and you could get married, then you might need to do that sooner than later so that you won't continue in sin in this way. Okay, so that's what it does in relationships. But the second thing here. It's a big one. And, it, and it's kind of interesting because it's not as publicly known for most of us, but the moment you see it, it, 
Y'all, it's just undeniable how powerful this is. Okay? We need to acknowledge that the biggest thing in the church right now, and the, the biggest thing that's affecting the church is not the same-sex gay marriage issue. It's simply not. It's this. It's pornography. In terms of the number of people being affected, the lives that are being utterly decimated, the marriages, the families that are breaking up, the untold ruin and wreckage that is being caused by one thing, this is it. Now, I'm not saying that the church should, shouldn't talk about the same-sex stuff. Absolutely, we should, and we should engage in that dialogue and that conversation. We're bringing Dr. Butterfield to kind of uh, be part of that conversation here at TU. But look, in certain parts in our country, all people want to talk about is basketball and football and baseball and these, the big sports, right? But do you know that more money is spent annually on pornography than all three of those sports at every level combined? Pornography is a huge deal. Now, before you think, oh, here's yet another youth pastor guy, college minister guy, who's telling me not to look at pornography because it's bad for me. I'm I'm, I'm not going to take that route. Here's what I am going to do. I'm going to tell you why pornography is wrecking your soul. And why, if it's not wrecking your soul, it's wrecking all the souls around you. And why you're being affected by this in ways that you may not even know. In, um, I think about 10 or 15 years ago, uh, there was a woman named Naomi Wolf. And she was an author, uh, is an author, a political writer, an advisor, was an advisor to both Al Gore and Bill Clinton in their political careers. And she wrote an article called The Porn Myth. And this, she's not a Christian. She wasn't writing under the, uh, the rubric of being a Christian. But it's called The Porn Myth. And it tells this story about a woman named Andrea, Andrea Dworkin, who herself was an anti-pornography activist back in the 80s before the Internet was really a thing. I guess Al Gore had maybe just invented it or something. Um, But before the floodgates of Internet porn just took over the world, she was kind of sounding the alarm and saying, we really need to clamp down on this stuff. Because if if it spreads and if it gets big... Then what's it, what it's going to do is that as it gets into the hands of men, it's going to turn them into these savages who have out-of-control hormones and all this stuff. And it's going, to, it's going to objectify women and devalue women. It's going to be this rape culture and all of this stuff. She basically said it's going to turn men into just fiends and savages. And what the article discusses, in fact, was that she was right about the warning that it's going to become a big deal. But she was absolutely wrong about what it actually did. And this is what it says. She says, The whole world post-internet did become pornographized. Young men and women were indeed being taught what sex is, how it looks, what its etiquette and expectations are by pornographic training. And this is having a huge effect on how they interact. But the effect is not making them into raving beasts. On the contrary, the onslaught of porn is responsible for deadening male libido in relation to real women and leading fewer and fewer men to fewer and fewer women 
because they don't see those women as porn-worthy. And she finished the article by saying, far from having to fend off porn-crazed young men, young women are worrying that as mere flesh and blood, they can scarcely get, let alone hold the attention of the person who's sitting across from them. Okay. Aside from the fact that the pornography industry is feeding sex slavery and sex trafficking across the world, which is itself awful. Aside from the fact that it's objectifying, causing people to be objects that you stare at and interact with in a one-way thing. Aside from that, friends, sex is killing your ability to relate to a real human and to appreciate what is real and true about the people around you. It is utterly denigrating and devaluing the image of God in other people. But it gets worse. Lauren Dubinsky wrote into the Huffington Post, herself not a Christian. The name of her article was, What I Wish I'd Known Before Watching Porn. Notice her insights on this. It's not all... Christian, so some of it's not going to be a one-to-one correlation with what I'm saying, but notice these insights. She says, I wish that 10 years ago someone had educated me on pornography, what it is, what it does, and what it, re- and what it teaches, and what it reaches in and destroys in the hearts, minds, and bodies of men and women. I wish that someone would have told me that researchers have suggested it sabotages your sex life. I wish someone would have explained how dopamine, the chemical that is released every time you experience pleasure, drives you to return to what provided that feeling before and oftentimes demands more, of a, more stimulation the next time. I wish someone would have told me that the kind of pornography you're most turned on by is usually linked to a corresponding hurtful event in your life, further injuring your brokenness. I wish someone would have told me pornography would normalize things I wasn't emotionally or physically ready to handle in my relationships with men, making me feel like I had no options or control over my sex life, filling me with much regret and physical pain. I wish someone would have told me I would begin to objectify men and build up images in my mind and think of sex day in and day out to the point where I couldn't remain focused on anything else. I wish someone would have told me it would make me feel less valuable to men and bring up insecurities for years in the bedroom. I wish someone would have pointed out I wish someone would have pointed out that pornography can establish your sexuality completely apart from real life relationships, causing huge problems in your intimacy with real significant others. I wish someone would have explained what sexual anorexia was. And that countless young men are unable to get erections because they've been watching porn since they were around 14 years old. I wish someone would have told all the men that I've dated that the porn they are watching is keeping them from being turned on by me. Ultimately destroying our relationship. I wish someone would have told me that dopamine and oxytocin being released from my watching, being released from my watching certain times of pornography would cause me to question my sexual orientation, which in turn would cost me relationships with friends. I wish someone would have told me it would subtly create a victim mentality in my mind, causing me to be even more sensitive than I already was to catcalls, whistles, and even sincere compliments. And finally, I wish someone had talked about how women watch it too. So I wouldn't have had to spend years living under the shame that comes with being the only one and thinking there was something wrong with me. Friends, statistically speaking, 
the latest statistics we have on this is that 90% of you guys in here watched porn yesterday and will tomorrow. And that 30% and very quickly rising of you women are doing the same thing. And I am not in any way saying that to bring shame upon you and say you're a lost cause. What I am is trying to draw attention to what she said there at the end. You're not alone. And the struggle that you're in, if, if you're engaged in this, you're certainly affected by it. But if you're engaged in this struggle and giving in in some way, then friends, you are not alone. And you cannot deal with it alone. Russell Brand, a source you might not expect to say something like this, did a little seven-minute video on porn and its effects in his life. And he said, porn is a drug. It's not good for me. It represents voyeurism, looking at women versus interacting with women, objectifying women. And it produces a fear of true intimacy. I do not like pornography. I haven't yet been able to make a long-term commitment to not looking at it. And that's affecting my ability to relate to women and myself and my own sexuality. How, how many times do we have to hear this? And these are not people, these are not Christians. These are not pastors telling. This is people just from the world saying, it's really affecting me. So, what do we do if this is me? What do we do if this is you? The first thing, again, is you have to acknowledge that the reason that you're engaging this is because you're looking for something. It is first and foremost, every single time, a heart issue. It has to be. It's not merely just your hormones. God has made us far more intricately than that. There's a heart issue going on. What are you looking for? What are you searching for? When you sit down at the computer, when you turn on the screen, what are you looking for? Are you looking for for a little shot of joy? Are you looking for a little bit of stimulation? Are you looking for significance? Are you looking for someone or something across that screen to affirm you? What are you looking for? And let me tell you that it's ultimately only going to be found in Jesus. So the first thing is to realize it's not just some physical thing that I have going on. It's a very deep desire. And you need to hear God coming right into the middle of that saying, where are you in this? He is not embarrassed by your sexual brokenness. He is not standing outside and saying, well, once you figure that out, once you get it together, then we can talk. He is coming right into your apartment, right into your laptop, right onto your phone and saying, come on, let's talk. The thing you're looking for is right here. It's not on that thing. You're looking for me, not for that. The second thing you do is you have to take this serious. You have to. It is going to ruin your life if it hasn't already. For some of you, it already has, and you're seeking to move faithfully toward Jesus and toward others in this, but you have to take it serious. If you are not taking it seriously, I beg you, come talk to me. Go talk to Emily, Joey. Find a friend or a parent maybe that you trust and talk to them. Y'all, it is serious. And thirdly, you have to know you cannot do it alone. Sin thrives in the, dark, in the darkness. Shame thrives when, it, when you feel like you're all alone. You need a community. God has designed us to be community projects. Your success at living faithfully in, a, in, in your sexuality will absolutely depend on how willing you are to engage this process with others. So if you need help, please ask help. Please ask for help. There's hope for you in the struggle against sexual immorality if you're in Christ.
It doesn't have to wreck and control your life now. It doesn't have to wreck and control future relationships that you hope to have. It doesn't. Please talk to others. Let me close with this. I was recently um, thinking about the scene from uh, the movie, the movie Blood Diamond, where uh, it's a very powerful movie, um, and I went and watched it again on YouTube. And uh, in the story, it's it's a, it's a movie about the corruption of the diamond trafficking business in Africa, Sierra Leone in particular. Um, and there's a, a young boy in there who uh, becomes engulfed in the trade himself. His name is Dia Vindi. And there's a scene where he stands before his father and um, in the character played by Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, I've forgotten his name. But he's standing before them, holding a gun at them, about to kill them. And his father looks at him and says this, Dia, Dia, what are you doing? Dia, look at me, look at me, what are you doing? You are Dia Vindi of the proud Mindy tribe. You are a good boy who loves soccer and school. Your mother loves you so much. She waits by the fire making plantains and red palm oil stew with your sister Nyanda and the new baby. The cows wait for you and Babu, the wild dog who minds no one but you. I know they made you do bad things, Dia, but you are not a bad boy. I am your father who loves you and you will come home with me and be my son again. And that scene ends with Dia Vindi weeping in his father's arms. Friends, God does not say, go and get your life together. Just like Dia's dad did not say, Dia, go figure it all out. Go get yourself clean and then come back home. He said, Dia, this is who you are. And friends, you need to hear God say, this is who you are. I created you. I know you. I know how you're created to function. You're going to have to trust me. Come home to me. Let me take care of all of your baggage. I will take you. I will welcome you back into my family and I will throw my arms around you and say, welcome home. Come to the Lord who loves you before you get your sexual stuff figured out. He will have you right now. And every day from now on. This is an invitation to Jesus. It's an invitation to the God who knows you, who loves you, and who wants you back in right relationship with Him so that you might be sent out into right relationship with others. Let's pray and ask Him to do that in our heart now.